want to begin first with prayer this morning. And uh, I want to pray for children that are in here. Pray that God will speak to them in a way that um, is personal, a way that means something. Kids, I want to encourage you to draw pictures. Um, what you're hearing, try and put pen to paper. That's one way that you can learn something. And uh, just do the very best you can to engage. And uh, I want you all to pray with me here in a moment, kids, that God will help you see uh, truth and that it will make your life different tomorrow because of what you've engaged today. Every, each week when we gather, too, we pray for a local church. This morning we're actually going to pray for not a local church but a foreign church, the church of Uzbekistan. Uh, today is the first day of Ramadan, which is a um, Muslim holiday, religious holiday. And uh, there's kind of a prayer focus for countries in the 1040 window, and that's a big portion of the world that's largely unreached. And Uzbekistan falls right, right in that window. Uzbekistan is a neighbor to Kazakhstan, where we have some missionaries there currently, where we have a team going a month from now. So this is all in the former Soviet Union. And uh, we're going to pray for Uzbekistan this morning. I understand uh, from... Uh, that there are several thousand believers in Uzbekistan, and there are consequences for sharing your faith in Uzbekistan. You can go to jail for 17 years for sharing Christ with someone and then becoming a believer. So we want to pray for the churches in Uzbekistan. They're not meeting in church buildings like this. They're meeting secretly in homes, and, and we want to pray that they'll be bold, and they'll be faithful, and that prison won't keep them from living with Christ out loud. And I uh, want to pray that we can be um, partners with them in a shared mission and shared commission and shared Lord. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this morning I want to, uh, on behalf of this body of believers, I want to lift up a uh, group of your people in Uzbekistan. Lord, I want to ask that you will captivate them with Christ, that you will undo them with the message of the gospel, so much so that 17 years worth of prison won't keep them from living with Christ out loud. Lord, I pray that they not love their life even to the point of death. And I pray that they love the gospel and they love our Lord so much so that they can live with Christ out loud, that they can share our commission, that we so freely have the opportunity to engage here in Greenville. And Lord, we pray that even despite the challenges that they face in sharing their faith, that it would actually be something that, that makes for the gospel flourish. And we pray that your sheep will hear their voice or hear your voice. Lord, I pray that for missionaries that uh, have been pulled from Uzbekistan in the last few months and pray that you will give them hope and give them encouragement and pray that you will open those doors for them to come back into the country again. Lord, we lift up that country. We pray for your name to be famous in that country. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray personally, or specifically for kids. I want to ask you to keep them engaged and captivate them with truth. And I pray that this afternoon and tomorrow will be different from right now because they've engaged your word. And pray that in a way that only the Holy Spirit can speak to their hearts. And Lord, I pray the same for their moms and dads and older brothers and sisters that we can be available this morning. I pray, Lord, that we'll not approach the word this morning asking what it can do for us, but asking what it can do to us, that our lives are laid completely bare and available, that you completely move us out of the way, completely move me out of the way and speak to your people and just take us out of the equation 
I just pray that you can just reveal truth, that you can change us and make us uh, people that are arrested with the rich gospel of Christ so that we are people on fire with faith. And pray that ultimately that you'll be glorified and you'll be famous through that. We turn this time over to you, Lord. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I am learning to savor the gospel. I have visited with enough believers in the last three years, and even before that, through teaching Sunday school classes and people viewing me as maybe a source of some answers and sitting down with people that profess faith, yet they can't answer questions like why Jesus had to die on a cross. Why did that have to happen? What that's done to me is little encounters like that has made me realize that we need to slow down. So these last few weeks, we have slowed down in John chapter 11. We weren't moving real fast in the verse, first place, but in John chapter 11, we have slowed down to absorb truth, to swim in it, to bathe in it, to eat it. And this morning is something of what I would call an Ebenezer. We sang a song a few minutes ago that had the word in there. You may not know what it means. It's actually a stone, a stone of help. That's a dusty stone, <laughs> a dirty stone. That's not what it means. A stone of help, a stone of remembrance. And Samuel placed an Ebenezer after the nation of Israel beat the Philistines. And it was a place where they remembered that God revealed himself to them, where God helped them, and they wanted to remember that place. So today, we're placing an Ebenezer it's on kind of the backside of a time of bathing in John chapter 11. We're not done with John chapter 11 yet. But at least today we're going to put a period at the end of the sentence of this series that we've been bathing in called the He Stinketh series. Let's go to John chapter 11 and read our passage. Then I'll escort you into where we've been. <clears throat> John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and you can just imagine the stink that poured out of this tomb. One of our young lads here at Crosspoint broke his arm recently and had to wear a cast, and he just got that off a week or week and a half or so, or so, something like that. And I asked him, I said, did your arm stink when they took that cast off? And he said, yeah, it was pretty smelly. And I, said, I thought to myself, imagine not just the surface layer of an arm, but a whole body decomposing over four days. The stench that must have wafted out of that tomb. So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died, who had been decomposing for four days, the man um, who stunk, came forth bound hand and foot, with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, 
unbind him and let him go. The book of John is so rich with imagery. In large part, what we've been doing the last at eight, eight or nine weeks is we've let some of the imagery here escort us into a series of messages where we've considered our stench. See, this picture of Lazarus, as he's decomposing four days, as he's smelly, as he's obviously completely dead, as he's occupying a tomb and can do nothing about that, his deadness, his decomposition, his resultant stench, and his utter and complete inability to do anything about that situation are pictures of our situation apart from Christ. What we realized these last few weeks is that we can't appreciate the riches that we have in Christ until we slow down and smell of our tombs. We can't appreciate the riches that we have in Christ until we seriously consider our poverty and our stench without Him. Now, what we've done these last few weeks, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6. What we've done these last few weeks is we've built a catalog of stench. And this morning, as kind of a time of remembrance, I want us to visit some of those things that the Lord has shown us in this catalog of stench. One of the first questions that we asked in this study was, do we really stink? You know, is this a fair thing that you're doing, Ben? You know, is this just, a, just some coincidental imagery that John happened to provide, or does this truly portray us? So we've gone all over the Word, and we built this catalog of stench. And this morning, we're going to climb into that catalog of stench for a few minutes. And Genesis is a great place to start. Genesis chapter 6 is the story of the flood. A lot of kids, you know that's one of the first stories that you learn, so this should be very um, personal even to the kids. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is before the flood. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, people must have been really bad. It was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Okay, so he sends the flood. Noah and his family build the ark over a long time, and then the rains come, and then the flood comes, and then eventually the water subsides, and Noah and his family get off the ark. Turn to chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Be sweet if there was a period right there. But there's not. Let's see what it says. For the intent of man's heart is, not was, is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. We were once wicked enough for the Lord to send a worldwide 
flood and we are still wicked enough for him to do the same but that he promised that he wouldn't. You would think that Noah and his family, after seeing a worldwide long swim in a deep pool, that that would have changed them. You would have think that you would have thought that as they heard creation crying out as they were drowning that they would recognize the handiwork of a holy creator and that that would have changed them yet they are still we are still wicked other passages I ask you on your little bulletin that you've got or a piece of paper to jot down these passages to become acquainted with this catalog of stench. That first passage is in Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 7 and chapter 8 verses 20 and 21. The second passage, unless you're really quick, you won't get there in time. I'm just going to share a few passages with you. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Our sin takes all of us away like a leaf. We are consumed by it. We are owned by our sin. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Man is not inherently good. Anybody that's raised a kid knows that. Kids, no offense. I mean, I, I have three of them. I know. I've seen them from the beginning. You don't have to teach them to say mine. You don't have to teach them to be mean. It comes natural. You have to work to go the other direction because the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, verse 5. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not only are we sinful and smelly as we live and pay bills and move and engage people and talk with people. Not only are we sinful in that setting, but we were conceived in sin from the very outset. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we are going back with a quick picture of our catalog of stench. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's take dead, let's escort Lazarus and the imagery of Lazarus into the picture, and let's go ahead and replace that with, and we were in league with Lazarus in our trespasses and sins. We lived on a slab right next to him. As he stunk up that tomb four days dead, we lived there with him in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, I'm just not picking on you Gentiles. Listen, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. The Jews were guilty too, he's telling them. We were by nature children of wrath. That's not mean. That doesn't mean that we were mean. We were mean to other people, wrathful. It means we were on the receiving end of a wrath that was due from a holy God. 
Paul says, Jew and Gentile alike are in league with Lazarus in our trespasses and sins. Then there's the preaching of Pentecost. In the book of Acts, I love the the way the whole thing unfolded. Peter, a guy who ran like a chicken when Jesus was taken from trials and to the cross. A guy that was afraid of a little maiden that he would be found out. Seven weeks after that, because he had had the risen Lord appeared to him, because he ate fish with the risen Lord, is preaching in the very place where his Lord and Savior was crucified. Seven weeks later, he preaches to thousands at Pentecost, and he says these words. He says, Jesus, whom you crucified by the hands of sinful men, Add that to our catalog of stench, that we weren't there physically, but we may as well have been because we crucified Christ by the hands of sinful men because it was our sin that nailed him there. We're as guilty as they are. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. catalog of stench continues in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands there is none who seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become useless there is none who does good There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's stench. Romans 3.23, just a few verses later, for all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The natural mind, the carnal mind, the pre-Christ and apart from Christ is not neutral. Someone may claim to be agnostic. There's no such thing Someone may claim to be uninvolved. I'm not, I'm not in on that. To decide whether God is or whether he's not. To decide whether Christ is or whether he's not. There's no neutral place. It says right here that if you are not Christ, you are an actual enemy of God. We're not empty vessels apart from Christ. We are vessels, as Jeremiah Burroughs painted the picture, filled with poison. And then there's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. 
says, death spread to all men because all sinned. That agrees with everything we've looked at so far. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Death spread to all men as a result. It's easy to see that as fair. Lazarus died because he sinned. We'll die if the Lord doesn't return first because we've sinned. And that sounds a lot like individual guilt. Well, that sounds like, okay, I can handle that. That's fair. If by some crazy mystery that you don't see yourself as individually guilty, let me introduce you to the last item in our catalog of stench. Picture of corporate guilt. Look in verse 18 of the same chapter. What I'm about to read is a passage that tells us that Lazarus is guilty not only because of his own sin, but he's corporately guilty, not just with Adam, but in Adam. Verse 18, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one piece of fruit, through one garden of Eden account, Transgression, through one transgression, condemnation to all men. In verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And Adam is our sin daddy. If you think you're not guilty, if by some crazy chance that you've ignored the first bunch of passages, you can't get by that one where it says that all are guilty in Adam. This may be unsavory. Our sense of fairness and individual fairness may have difficulty with this, but I want to challenge you not to embrace forgiveness at the hands of another, i.e. Christ, unless you're willing to also recognize guilt at the hands of another, i.e. Adam. We are guilty with Adam because all sin and all die, and we are guilty in Adam because he's our daddy. Now, from this catalog of stench we discovered these last few weeks, riches. How crazy is that? If you've been uncomfortable with the last few minutes and you thought, man, is this going to end? Really, this is, does, the, does it end? It doesn't end. If you spend more and more time here, you just hear the same note played over and over again that we are undeserving, we are wicked, we are vile, we are odious, we stinketh. And that we can see ourselves in league with Lazarus. And it's from those weird riches, our weird picture, that we find these otherworldly riches. In these last few weeks, we've discovered some of these riches. Here's the first. We've built a new catalog of observations of the formerly smelly. The reason we were able to call him formally smelly is because although we stinketh apart from Christ, through the effectual call of Christ, we no longer stinketh. We still stinketh, but we're bathed in the blood of Christ. That's the difference, the finished work of Christ. So we are formally smelly. The first, ca- first in the catalog of observations of the formerly smelly and that we are students of the stench of our tombs. What we've discovered from bathing in our stench, from appreciating those first things, that catalog of stench that we built, is this created a deeper understanding of our wickedness and the effectiveness of Christ's finished work. 
When you truly see your wickedness, when you truly surrender to the catalog of stench and you import yourself in there or you acknowledge that you're already in there, you realize that we are fellow POWs. We are fellow prisoners. And Christ goes from being an insurance agent, a lame insurance agent, in a cheap polyester suit that we buy our non-health policy from, to being a, a savior who rescues us. It changes things all together. So first of all, as we grow downward, as we see that we truly stinketh, as we have a lower view of ourselves, it's in that and through that lens that we see through the telescope and have a higher view of Christ. We cannot have a higher view of Christ apart from smelling that stench. It cannot happen. The second thing in the catalog of observations of the formerly smelly is that we know the singular reason that we don't stink any longer, and that's the rich, effectual, righteousness-imputing blood of Christ that covers us. There's nothing in us that's affected it. There's nothing in us that deserves it. There's nothing in us that changes it. It is His work alone that covers us, and that's why we don't stink anymore. That's why we've become an aroma of Christ to God. Not because of anything in you other than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now. Third, the formerly smelly worship with their lives. When you consider the stench of our tombs, when you consider that catalog of stench, is there any room to just attend worship services? And call that worship? Is there any room to go through some process? Any, is there anything that we could do and call that worship? Anything other than our very life. That's the only appropriate response to our stench and what he's rescued us from. Is that we worship with our lives. Compartment free. We don't have a Sunday Jesus compartment. Okay. I'll let you in on Sunday Jesus, but you can't have me the rest of the week. It's my life. There's no room for compartments. When we consider our stench and what he's rescued us from, it transforms worship from being a song to an offered life in every part, in every day, in every area. There's no room for Jesus being an option on our life, like leather in a sunroof on a car that we're going to purchase. He becomes the whole car, and we sell our whole self to purchase it. He becomes everything, compartment-free. And they worship with a pierced, horse-trodden heart. Whenever Peter, that former chicken, seven weeks earlier, when at Pentecost he preaches to those thousands of people and he says, Jesus Christ, whom you've crucified by the hands of sinful men, it says that they were pierced to the heart. And they said, what must we do? piercing to the heart. Homer used the word in one of his writings, a contemporary writing in Greek. He used the word to describe what it was like when a herd of horses trampled the ground. That those who were the formerly smelly worship from a pierced, horse-trodden heart. It's brokenhearted over their sinfulness. That's where worship comes from, is brokenheartedness over our sinfulness. We also realize that the formerly smelly are surprised by grace. 
we are arrested by how low grace had to reach. We are taken with the fact and surprised by the reality that not not only did He rescue us, redeem us, and ransom us, but He took our place. He didn't just say, okay, you guys are forgiven. He stepped into our cross. That shocking grace and the formerly smelly realized that the worthless was purchased with the priceless. The formerly smelly are also content in their station and lot. When we consider that we really don't deserve anything, albeit unless we've read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we realize that we are children of wrath, that we are deserving of God's wrath. If we realize we're deserving of nothing good and only deserving of God's wrath, then when faced with a trial, whatever that trial be, insert whatever it is in there, cancer, loss of a friend, diabetes, blindness, poverty, job loss, back pain, insert whatever it is into that equation, and you go, oh man, that's gravy compared to a lake of fire for eternity. I'll take even that. That's, what, that's why the world can't understand it. How could Christians brave even the most terrible trial? It's because we compare it to a lake of fire and we go, oh man, that ain't so bad. And then that points you into a deeper gratitude and stronger worship of Christ. And then that reality that you are liberated and protected and kept from a lake of fire points you Christward so that you look back at those trials that started all the heartache in the first place and you see that they've changed. About the time you take your eyes off of them and let them do the terrible work that they're supposed to do and turn you Christward and you eat Christ and then you look back at that situation and you go, things have changed. Now, whether the situation changed or whether we changed, who cares? It's just better. It's just better. That's where contentment comes from. The formerly smelly are also genuinely humble. Our poverty, our stench, our poor condition apart from Christ leaves us answerably humble. Not just legally humble. If you were here that Sunday, you know that we differentiated between the two. Legal humility is when you get caught and you get nabbed and you're like, oh man, how embarrassed am I? I may even be remorseful. Bummer. I'm humbled. That's not answerable, saving humility. That's just legal humility. But the reality is that the formerly smelly experience genuine answerable humility because they want to reckon over being caught. There's a difference between being remorseful and being repentant. And they want to be repentant. And they realize the only way to do so, the only way to reckon is through the finished work of Christ. So it too turns them Christward. The formerly smelly are also little in their own eyes. They come as little children And they continue to grow downward. 
the formerly smelly, come unfinished and beating their chests. We looked at a parable a few weeks ago where this tax collector and these Pharisee, they're, they're, they're both together, they're both praying, they're both interacting with God, and the Pharisee is standing up and saying, boy, I sure am glad I'm not like that sorry dude right there. And the tax collector is beating his chest, recognizing that he is unrighteous. And we realize that who went away forgiven? The tax collector that recognized that he's not a finished product. He's not righteous. He walked away beating his chest and he walked away forgiven. Unfinished, but forgiven. The formerly smelly love extravagantly. We met the sinful woman last week that broke the alabaster jar and poured it on Christ's feet. She had been forgiven much. And she loved much. The more you smell of your tomb, the more you realize you have been forgiven much. And you love much. Her love was public. Her love was expensive. Her love was lavish. And her love was liquid. It was accompanied by many tears that were fueled by forgiveness of great sin. And the formerly smelly forgive long and deep. The formerly smelly recognized the $6 billion sin debt that we owe vertically. So when there's a debt that's extended toward us or taken from us, horizontally, $10,000 debt is jump change, whatever it is. Even the worst thing you could possibly imagine in the horizontal direction pales in comparison to our vertical debt that we owe our holy God. And that's where we find the fuel and the model for forgiveness horizontally. We can forgive readily in light of the stench of our tombs. These are surprising riches from a contrary kingdom. A kingdom not of this world, the kingdom of God. From such an unlikely place as a smelly tomb in the good company of our decomposing buddy, our decomposing tomb mate, Lazarus, we have found practical resources that make for abundant life today. A study of wickedness and stench is not of this world. The world just wouldn't participate in it. It wouldn't submit to it. And they wouldn't agree to it. And the world wouldn't partake of the riches that we've uncovered as a result. I told you last week that I had something in store for you this morning. And I want to share a summary of the life and ministry of a guy named Charles Simeon. His story is an appropriate ending to the He Stinketh series. Because this man embodied what I've called stench awareness. This guy recognized the stench of his own tomb and the beautiful result was a consistent and ever-growing adoration of Christ. We'll start with a quote from John Piper before I start telling you about Charles Simeon. Listen to this. When historians list the character traits of the last third of 20th century America, commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, Resolve and perseverance will not be on the list. The list will begin with an all-consuming interest in 
self-esteem. It will be followed by the subheadings of self-assertiveness and self-enhancement and self-realization. And if you think you're not a child of your times, just test yourself to see how you respond when people reject your ideas. He was sharing this with a, with a bunch. He, he shared this quote with a bunch of pastors and then told Charles Simeon's story. And he actually had in there, test yourself to see how you respond in the ministry when people reject your ideas, but replace that with anything. Test yourself to see how people respond in your marriage when your wife rejects your ideas. Test yourself to see how you respond in your business when your teammates reject your ideas, when your neighbors reject your ideas. Test yourself to see how you respond and see if those characteristics are yours. Commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance. If you think you're not a child of the times, test yourself. We need help here, Piper goes on. When you're surrounded by a society of emotionally fragile quitters. Thank you, John Piper, for saying that. Because then I can just read it. I'm not held accountable for it. When you're surrounded by a society of emotionally fragile quitters, and when you see a good bit of this ethos in yourself, you need to spend time with people, whether dead or alive, whose lives prove there's another way to live. So we're going to spend some time the next few minutes with a dead guy, a guy named Charles Simeon. He began his journey of faith at the age of 19 when he was a student at Cambridge in the year 1779. He was instructed by the provost to attend the Lord's Supper, and recognizing the gravity of it, he started digging and searching and reading. He's still an unbeliever at this point. He read about how the Jews transferred their sin to the head of their offering And he wondered on whose head he might transfer his own sin. Naturally, he would only find one sufficient, beautiful head to bear his sins. And in Passion Week of 1779, he labored over this until Easter morning. He arose with the thought, Jesus Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So it was that eternal life began for Charles Simeon. This guy had a tremendous journey of faith. In the next few years, he was just devoted himself to study. His passion in study was remarkable. He actually charged himself money if he overslept into his study time, and he paid his servant girl. And here's something that happened. He actually, there's this account where he describes himself as laying in bed comfortably, thinking, oh, she can probably use the money. So he upped the ante and decided to throw his money in the river if he overslept again. In May of 1782, three years after coming to Christ, he was ordained a deacon in the Anglican Church. And after a summer of interim preaching position at St. Edward's Church, he was called as the pastor of Trinity Church. He preached his first sermon there November 10th of 1782, and he stayed there for 54 years There aren't many pastors like that these days. He stayed there for 54 years until his death in 1836. And before I continue with Charles Simeon's story, I want us to climb into this story. I want to personalize this for you. I want you to take your cares, your burdens, your problems, your trials, your struggles, and put all of them aside for a moment and climb into these trials you're about to hear. Imagine yourself, Charles Simeon. Climb in. 
And you'll see how God uses trials for his own glory and how he uses them to grow us downward. Here were just a few of his trials in his 54-year pastorate. First, he was himself a trial. He had a harsh manner about him. And one day he was visiting with a pastor friend, a guy named Henry Venn, who lived 12 miles away at Yelling. When he left after his visit with Mr. Venn, his, Mr. Venn's daughters complained about Simeon's behavior. And Mr. Venn then took the girls to the backyard and had the girls pick an unripened peach. They asked him, Daddy, why would you have us pick an unripened peach? And he said, Well, my dears, it is green now, and we must wait, but a little more sun and a few more showers, and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. Charles Simeon had a harsh manner about him, and I'm going to share with you more on that in a moment. But know that he was himself likely his greatest trial. Secondly, his congregation was a trial. Simeon was appointed to the pastorate of Trinity three years after he became a Christian, but the church members did not want him to be the pastor. Huh, funny that. They wanted the assistant pastor, a guy named Mr. Hammond, to be the pastor. Here's one of the ways that they displayed their desire. The congregation refused to let him be the Sunday afternoon preacher. The preacher for this second Sunday service was traditionally decided by the church members. So for five years, they assigned it to Mr. Hammond. For five years. They gave it to the assistant pastor. And then when Mr. Hammond left, instead of giving this lecture to Simeon, they gave it to another guy for seven more years. So after 12 years in the pastorate, his church finally let him preach on Sunday evenings. During this 12-year period, Simeon tried to start a later Sunday evening service, and many of the townspeople came, but the church wardens locked the doors while the people stood waiting in the street. Something else the congregation did to resist Simeon was to lock the pew doors on Sunday mornings. We don't have them on our pews, but in their setting, they had little doors with keys. And the people that owned those pews didn't show up, nor did their keys show up on Sunday morning worship services, and they refused to let others sit in their personal pews. So Simeon set up seats in the aisle and in any open place at his own expense but the church wardens took them out and threw them in the churchyard. This resistance lasted for 10 years into his pastorate. 10 years. In 1792, Simeon was granted a legal decision that prevented pew holders from locking their pews, but he didn't use that right. He kept preaching, and he kept pastoring, and he kept loving. Third, the university was a trial. He was there at Cambridge University, right there next to the campus. And over the years, the Cambridge students were prejudiced against Simeon by his hostile congregation. He was slandered with rumors. The students repeatedly disrupted his services and caused an uproar in the streets. One observer wrote, For many years, Trinity Church and the streets leading to it were the scenes of the most disgraceful tumults. He was himself a trial. His congregation was a trial. And the Cambridge students were a trial. 
But his call was deep and his burden was great. During his first year in the pulpit, he preached a sermon to the people standing in the aisles, sitting on the chairs in every open space that he bought at his own expense while the pews were locked. He preached this. He said, remember the nature of my office. This is in a sermon. Remember the nature of my office and the care incumbent on me for the welfare of your immortal souls. Consider whatever may appear in my discourses as harsh, earnest, or alarming, not as the effects of enthusiasm, but as the rational dictates of a heart impressed with a sense both of the value of the soul and the importance of eternity. By recollecting the awful consequences of my neglect, you will be more inclined to receive favorably any well-meant admonitions. For Charles Simeon, it did not matter that his people were often against him. He was not commissioned by them, but by the Lord. And they were his responsibility. So here's how he handled his trials. First, regarding himself. Remember I said before that he had a harsh manner about himself. Simeon also had the bad habit of speaking as if he was angry about insignificant issues. One day, 22 years into his pastorate, this blows my mind. 22 years into his pastorate. He should have arrived by then, shouldn't he? 22 years into his pastorate, he was visiting with a guy named Mr. Hankinson. And he became irritated with a servant who was stoking the fire. He gave the guy a swat on the back to get him to stop stoking the fire. And then as he was getting ready to leave, the same servant got a bridle mixed up. And Simeon's temper flared against the guy. Mr. Hankinson wrote Simeon a letter under the guise of his servant and said he did not see how a man who preached and prayed so well could be in such a passion about nothing and wear no bridle on his tongue. He signed the letter, John Softly. Charles Simeon responded in a letter to the servant, to John Softly, from Charles, proud and irritable, I most cordially thank you, my dear friend, for your kind and seasonable reproof. And in a letter to Mr. Hankinson, he wrote, I hope, my dearest brother, that when you find your soul nigh to God, you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. He grew smaller in his own eyes over time as he grew downward an event and an occasion and a sniff of his sinfulness at a time. Rather than developing a higher view of himself year by year in his pastorate, he grew more and more acquainted with his shortcomings and failings and more and more captivated with Christ's faithfulness and finished work. Second, regarding his congregation, Here's what he said when the pews had been locked for 10 years. Remember, they were locked for 12. Here's what he said after the pews had been locked for 10 years. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. He's speaking in regards to this sections of his church building being completely vacant. Imagine if nobody was sitting in pews and they're all sitting in everywhere else. Here's what he said. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. 
the passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this. The servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the Isles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such reflection I should have sunk under my burden. Third, regarding the university students, he just continued to serve and preach and pastor and love. And faithfully, over time, the Lord called sheep from among the students. They actually called them Sims, the students that followed Charles Simeon. And they took as much heat as he did. How did Simeon continue on in the face of such difficulty? off and on, that continued off and on for 54 years in his ministry. Ultimately, he saw humiliation and adoration as inseparable friends. While the world today tells us to get rid of feelings of lowliness, vileness, and unworthiness, Simeon demonstrates that there are treasures of adoration and faithfulness on the other side of growing downward. For him, adoration of Christ grew best in the soil of humiliation for sin. I'll close with this last quote from Charles. I've never thought that the circumstance of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. On the contrary, I have always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified toward me. There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my vileness and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. Let's pray. Lord, as I shared this morning as we considered our catalog of stench, I um, want to ask you for something that is uh, something that only you can do. Lord, I ask you to make that personal to every single one of us. Lord, I pray that as we consider every one of those elements, that we see ourselves standing full-faced in a mirror And that we can smell ourselves and that we can see that apart from Christ that we are in league with Lazarus. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that you will just lavish on us sweet riches that are so otherworldly that the world just cannot appreciate, cannot deliver like contentment of all things on the other side of stench. Lord, I pray that we will ever keep the smell of that tomb in our nostrils. And I pray that this Ebenezer that we've laid down today will be something that changes this people. That makes this people not necessarily larger, but in fact smaller. Make us small in our own eyes. Lord, make us captivated with Christ. Make it happen to where you have a dailiness in this people. A daily worship where we engage and we love and we just... 
are living with Christ out loud, and we are shocked and surprised by grace at every step. Lord, make us an effective people in glorifying you as we face trials, every one of us, and as our neighbors and our friends and our workmates and family members that don't know you see us how we engage those trials and they see an abiding joy that's from another world. I pray that that points them Christward. I pray that that sweet aroma that we are now because of the blood of Christ, that that there will be others in this community that have not yet smelled it that will say, that's sweet. And that they will turn toward you. Lord, I don't ask for a scheme to reach this community. I ask for a daily people. And I ask for that in my own life. A daily satisfaction. A daily enjoyment of Christ. To where the sheep that have not yet been discovered just hear your voice. Through how we live and love. Lord, we turn over the next chapter in this little church wherever you'd have it go. I just pray that the word will just continue to speak. And in fact, in the same breath, we thank you then trusting that it will. We commit to take our time. We commit to bathe in it and eat it. We commit to dialogue about it and on it between Sunday mornings. We commit to not just be people that attend church, but the people that are church. Lord, we thank you so much for the riches of community and the word. More than anything, Lord, we thank you for the sweet, effectual call of Jesus Christ that calls us forth from death to life. It's in his precious, perfect, holy, satisfying, sweet, aromatic name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.